This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by Emerging Markets Editor Ed Reid and journalist Ryan Duff. Hello, both. Ryan, uh, disappointing night at Pataudry last night. <laughs> I'm glad you reminded <laughs> me. Thank you. Yes, it was. It was a... Uh... It, it wasn't it wasn't the nicest way to spend my Wednesday night. I'm not going to lie to you. It felt a little bit humiliating. But um, yeah, who knows? Onwards and upwards. We've still got the European Conference League. And more importantly, we have bigger events to come in Aberdeen next week. <sighs> Look at that. He's just setting up those segues. I, I, we had an event last night and it was about 50 years of firsts. And one of them was about kind of what happened in 1983. So we did get a little cheeky. European Cup Winners Cup reference in there uh, at one point or the other. But yes, indeed, uh, bigger and, uh, dare I say, better events uh, next week in Aberdeen with Offshore Europe. Uh, and Ryan, you've been taking a look at some of the business implications coming up. Yeah, yeah. So like, obviously, you know, Offshore Europe, for, for anyone that hasn't, you know, been paying attention to anything over the past few months, there's this little indie event coming to Aberdeen that not very many people talk about called Offshore Europe. Um, the last time it, it was uh, it was live was just before COVID in 2019, where it welcomed 38,000 people uh, to the Granite Say. So, you know, it, it's a fairly sizable event. So we uh, we got in touch with some local business leaders and the event coordinators just to speak about the impact that the the northeast of Scotland will see from this event. And yeah, there's like there's a lot of buzz going around right now. You know, anyone you speak to, um, especially up here, any any interviews I've done or chats I've had with folks, the 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 first question's always, "You going next week?" Or you know, um, you know, what are you doing in the evenings? Um, so it's it, there's a lot of buzz, and we spoke to the Society of Petroleum Engineers who run the event, and they say they're expecting. 35,000 to come this year, so just slightly less than 2019, uh, with 4,000 coming from overseas. But they did also say that this is a free-to-attend event, so those numbers could very well be higher with people showing up closer to time. But with that, there's a lot of cash that's ready to be spent in the northeast of Scotland. Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce told us that recent analysis indicates that the event will bring... £50 million to Aberdeen's economy, as each international delegate is set to spend around £1,200. That, if if we look at the numbers that SPE give us and compare that, uh, that means about £4.8 million of that £50 million is expected to, to come from international uh, international visitors. But then what we've also got to remember here is, you know, there are people coming up from elsewhere in the UK, not international, that will also still need hotel rooms. Near enough, every delegate will end up going into the city centre for food, drink, uh, socialising, business meetups throughout the week, throughout that Tuesday to Friday four-day event. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of cash to be spent. Ryan Crichton from uh, the Chamber of Commerce said that for most bars and taxi drivers, offshore Europe is second only to Christmas in terms of the customers and revenue it brings. Big words, big words. Uh, Christmas is obviously a linchpin of the uh, the hospitality sector. So yeah, it was, it's a bold claim. But you know, we spoke to some local uh, local businesses about that. We spoke to Aberdeen's uh, Fierce Bar, uh, Fierce Bar, uh, owned by local brewers Fierce Beer, uh, about their uh, their experience with offshore Europe. 
And they, if you've ever been uh, to the, the bar on Exchange Row, you'll know that it's not very big in terms of floor space. It's a lovely venue, but it's maybe not the largest. And their manager, Jamie Farman, told me that they don't usually expect big bookings. It's normally smaller groups that, that show up uh, or book tables there. But during the week of Offshore Europe, they get a lot of attention for sort of bigger parties. Um, I met with him on uh, Wednesday afternoon and he said they already had a number of bookings um, and there were more people getting in touch with interest. So that, you know, that sort of shows just the uptick. And then it was the same for the Union Cafe just around the corner. Um, they, they also said that they see a lot of increase in to-go orders, uh, takeaways for coffees and the like, presumably because a taxi rank is just up the road at the uh, the casino just next door. So a lot of people living in hotels in the city centre might be swinging in for a quick hit of caffeine before a day on the conference floor. So clearly, clearly very positive things from the first offshore Europe since uh, 2019. Earlier in the week, I did speak to a, ta- a local taxi firm as well, Concab, who said that even though there is an increase in business, even though we do have that uptick, there is uh, there is stre- uh, stress and pressures that come along with that. You know, um, they were saying oh, there's only so many cars, taxis are already a limited resource within the Granite City, and the the increased business means that you know they're spread a little bit thin there's pressure that comes with that which is totally understandable but you know i I think i want to open up the floor i've spoken for quite a bit i feel like i've just done a monologue from like a shakespearean play or something there so (laughs) that 50 million figure that's it's quite sizable right guys it is, yeah. I mean, I the thing that kind of strikes me a, a little bit uh, is, you know, it's the first one in four years um, in person. Um, lower, it looks like, than the, what was expected in 2019 in terms of attendance. Uh, I was over in ONS in Stavanger last year, and it did it did something like 61,000 people in terms of visitor numbers. So uh, can't help but feel a little... I guess disappointed by that, but I guess we'll just see what comes of it. I, I, certainly, there is plenty of excitement going around the city, and uh, that uh, working around the spend, I, I guess that makes sense. Uh, I think it's going to vary depending on uh, visitors domestically versus internationally, of course. But uh, yeah, I mean, great to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that comes up with these other shows, uh, and maybe Ed, you can speak to Adepec, uh, but for for me in ONS, what was terrific about that was that they had, okay, yes, like us, an exhibition center that's miles kind of out of the way from the city center. But they brought so much of the events into the center in Stavanger, this key uh, key side where there's restaurants, bars, and a lot of the, like, the debate and events and that were going on. There's quite a lot going on in terms of Aberdeen city center throughout the week. So again, this kind of stands up and hopefully, you know, it can have a kind of replicated feel. Um, and I think Adepec does even bigger numbers than... 61,000. Yeah, it's uh it's giant. It's, it's it's kind of mind-boggling. Um so I think so so I'm 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 going to Adepec which is the beginning of October because they've moved it because of COP. COP's happening in Dubai in November, so which is generally when uh, about when Adepec happens. So they brought Adepec forward a month, so the beginning of October. I have a feeling that the number I saw was 160,000. Wow. That's insane. Um <laughs> It is. It is absolutely bonkers. Have they booked out the entire 
<laughs> well, no, it's it's vast. Yeah, isn't it? basically, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Abu Dhabi is just basically just like full at that point. Um, it is it it, it is absolutely mind boggling. Um, so it's 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 a lot to take in, and there's, you know, it, the, the the conference hall is is massive, and there are you know sort of I don't know, there's sort of thousands of uh, of, of of delegates and, uh, and and sort of speeches and, and and all sorts of things going on at that point. But I was wondering, just think, coming kind of, kind of, coming back to offshore Europe, say you know to our uh, to our to our to our foreign friends who may be coming to Aberdeen, uh, are, are there any are there any particular sites uh, that people should, uh, <laughs> should 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 come and see? Any uh, sort of a top three uh, oil and gas uh, must sees? Oh well, obviously you'll need to go to the Aberdeen Maritime Museum on Wednesday night right. uh, for the Energy Voice event. <laughs> Ryan, get in! Come on, <laughs> number one. Wow, <laughs> there we go. Uh, wow. So that's that's the number one. Uh, there we go. Always on brand, lads. Um, I don't know. I feel like looking at my schedule for the week, and maybe it's different for others, but I'd, I'd be hesitant to say it is. I don't think I'd have time to do anything other than go to the <laughs> conference hall and then go to the events at night yeah. and crash and do the same for the rest of the three days. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think if, if it's your first time in Aberdeen, uh, there are there are obviously the the sites that if you go on the Visit Aberdeen website, you'd, you'd want to see the... Uh, uh, the the chapel and all that, but yeah, I feel like it's probably uh, it's probably not likely that you're going to end up having the time to go and see any of it. I feel like you're going to see an awful lot of the press and journal live. Yes, I think I think that's right, uh, I th- Ryan. I think it's it's so busy and folk going. This is business tourism, right? Um, and and they will see the city centre. You know, hit up Krakatoa Bar if you're kicking about, guys, and obviously go to Energy Voices event. Hit up the art gallery. Um, fantastic space in the city centre, um, Belmont Street. But look, I mean, maybe just to address a, a constant bugbear of my own, you know, Aberdeen and North East Scotland, yeah, it's linked to oil and gas, but it is so much more than that. And there's a lot of complaints at the moment about our Union Street and there's work to, to redevelop it. But see, as soon as you go out into Aberdeenshire as well, I'm not saying there's not things to do in the city. Of course there are. It's great things to do in the city. But the Shire really is kind of the jewel in the crown, if you like. I mean, in terms of just... Everything from kind of adventure tourism to history, castles, uh, whiskey, of course. There's so much uh, to enjoy uh, around this place. It's not just tied to energy. Um, so if you do find yourself with a bit of time uh, around offshore Europe, I highly doubt you will. But do check that out because we've got so much to offer here. We've rambled on, guys. Uh, we're already going past our time. So let's move on to the next one. Thank you for that, Ryan. Uh, and next up, it's going to be Ed with, uh, well, some cracks in... Joe Biden's Green Dream. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, Energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
Okay, Ed, well, so much discussion of the US, its offshore wind plans, the IRA, um, but I guess some cracks perhaps showing in the armour this week. Yeah, so I think, I mean, as, as you say, Alistair, the, uh, the, the sort of the, uh, much of the discussion in, in, in the sort of the energy world over the last year or so has really been about uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which was that massive piece of legislation brought in uh, about this time in uh, last year, um, which just really kind of kick-started uh, the US's uh, net zero dreams. It was a real sort of a show of determination. And a lot of people around the world have been sort of talking about, oh, how can we try and emulate these successes? How can we attract this sort of level of international investment? Because it feels like, I don't know if you guys find this, but you know, speaking to any sort of you know renewable energy developer, technology provider, they're always like, well, I mean, I could do stuff in the UK or Denmark or Australia, but my hands are full in in, in America. Mm. Um, so it, it really feels like it's kind of dominated uh, those kind of discussions for for some you know kind of really you know, the last sort of twelve months. But it feels like you know maybe some of those kind of problems of creating that level of investment at such a scale in such a short time might be starting to sort of see some of those cracks appearing. So. This week, um, Orsted, the, uh, you know, the sort of major offshore wind developer, obviously sort of you know incredibly strong in in Europe, which has been one of those kind of big entrants into into the US. Obviously, chasing these uh, these IRA dollars, I think as they prefer to call it, rather than IRA. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and um, so 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 Orsted sort of waded in. It's got sort of I think three big uh, sort of offshore wind plans. And, you know, there have been some sort of, you know, kind of warning signs, you know, kind of maybe kind of popping up in the last kind of couple of months or so. But but finally this week they kind of came out and said, actually, they're looking at some really sort of big ticket impairments that potentially reach uh, 16 billion kroner, which is about $2.3 billion. So I think, you know, sort of first up, um, they've said there are some problems around suppliers. So that's about 5 billion kroner. There are some problems around interest rates, which might be another 5 billion kroner. And then the, the sort of the last 6 billion kroner or so is is about um, whether they may be able to secure a sort of a higher level of, of investment tax credits. They, they're hoping to get 40%. It looks like they might get 30%. And so that might have an impact of nearly a billion dollars on 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 in terms of how uh, Orsted sees the value of these of these projects. So I think there are some really big kind of concerns kind of cropping up in terms of you know quite how those sums are adding up. And obviously, I think there are, there are always those questions, aren't there? Whenever these kind of commercial discussions coming up, and I, and I think you know we see probably quite sort of similar things happening in the UK around. To what extent uh, is this kind of the wind companies just trying to get, you know, sort of, you know, better returns? Can they can they try and wrangle a better deal? To what extent should they have worked those problems out before they went in? I mean, I think obviously, I suppose interest rates, you know, might have been a bit of a surprise. But I feel like, you know, the supplier questions, those kind of investment tax credits. You know, maybe you know, did they did they fully work out those 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 ideas before they sort of you know kicked off these 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 kind of big ticket plans? And they did, you know, they they have managed to 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 to, to extract some additional concessions. Uh, I think it was in New Jersey in 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 July they managed to to get some some more uh, tax credits from from the state that were supposed to go through to consumers, and the, and the, and the state has essentially redirected them to Orsted, uh, with in in return for Orsted kind of committing to some sort of local investments. So I think that's that's kind of one side of it, and then I think there's a sort of a broader question. I, I spoke to a guy called uh, Michael Sarasoli this week, 
who was who was talking about um, long distance transmission, right? So I think you know again, this is something we're seeing in the UK as well, right? Kind of challenges around the grid, around the queue to get onto the grid, and he was talking about how um, the, the there's not sufficient regulatory interest in building those kind of long distance transmission lines. I mean, I think, look, obviously, you know, we can all sort of, you know, put and hopefully are sort of putting, you know, solar panels on the roof or whatever. But in terms of sort of, you know, really moving that needle in terms of sort of utility scale um, renewable energy projects, you've got to have uh, those big projects where you can get the, 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 the sort of highest utilization rate. So, he was talking about solar projects, you know, making the most sense, say, in the southwest, um, you know, wind projects in the sort of the middle of the country. And but, you know, essentially, you can't have those big projects being, in, in you know, built without the sort of the means to, to export that power to, to, to elsewhere to where the demand is. It only makes sense to, 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 to build on that scale if you've got that sort of sufficient demand. And, and he was saying that, that that's not happening at the moment. And, and he felt that it was unlikely to change during this electoral season, which obviously the Americans love an election. <laughs> Nothing gets them happier than talking about the next president. Uh, and so the uh, the elections, are, I think, are, are, uh, November 2024. Um, so it's essentially a year and a half. We're, as Discussions have already kicked off. That he was saying that nothing's going to happen in that time. So only after the new president comes in, which, you know, would be... Well, I mean, depending on if it's a Democrat, Republican, um, you know, sort of basically some point after sort of, you know, sort of 20, the end of 2024. So it feels like there are these big plans kind of going in. There's a lot of challenges around it. And there's also a time limit on how the IRA uh, structures those investment incentives. So people have got to get those things moving. So for offshore wind, for it's, it's, it's before 2026. So there's a diminishingly small window whereby you will be able to actually move those projects ahead, which obviously kind of throws more sort of risk into the, into the equation. Yeah, yeah. The thing that strikes, I mean, that, that, that well, the, the presidential kind of election, the fact that that's going to have key things in the doldrums for such a long time, clearly that's going to be a huge concern. Um, the thing, yeah, the thing that struck me, yeah, it was just, you know, Clearly, everything that's playing out in the US, it's very, very uh, much a mirror image to some of the issues playing out in the UK as regards, you know, huge offshore wind uh, and other um, projects. I mean, looking at the grid stuff here, I think you wrote, you know, last big wave of US grid construction in the 1950s, 60s. You know, I think it's something very similar to the UK, and I think it's probably the most cited, most common um, problem that's coming up at the moment is just getting these kind of offshore wind projects um, and, and connecting them to, to demand hubs in major cities across the UK. You can only imagine how that is exacerbated with the United States. In, in terms of them, I suppose, putting the right projects in the right places, you mentioned solar. And, and one thing, I used to live in Texas. You can imagine why there might be an idea of getting some solar there. But obviously, uh, onshore wind, I believe, is huge in Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. Um but they had their Gulf of Mexico uh, auction this week, not looking quite as hot as they'd hoped. Yeah, so I mean, I think I mean it's it's, it's hard to say whether the, I mean there have been some questions raised about you know whether the Gulf of Mexico's geology is quite as 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 uh, supportive, I suppose, as, as sort of other other areas. 
And I think, you know, so there are those kind of questions around, is it, you know, it's a, it's a bit of an unknown area. Obviously, there's, you know, sort of a history of sort of offshore uh, oil operations in the area, which you would have thought would be supportive. But I think, you know, is it, it there are the kind of questions around, you know, kind of conditions. And I suppose, um, you know, does the wind blow there as much? There's been some, 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 some concerns raised around that. And I think, you know, maybe it's just that sort of, you know, people are sort of rethinking that the degree of risk, right, after that sort of initial sort of, heady headlong rush into in, into these into these big projects into sort of splashing huge amounts of cash out onto them like companies are thinking oh do we do we actually need to go through this and i think you know kind of bringing it back to that kind of question around kind of comparisons you know i think that kind of idea of like local content is really important right which i guess you know you guys are sort of seeing as well in scotland and so in the us they have the jones act which essentially means that you can't have foreign vessels operating in us territorial waters it's a, again it's another break on 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 the sort of development you know you can't bring in foreign flagged vessels they have to be you know major majority us owned they have to be majority us staffed um you know and so, and, and, and and you know so these, these tax credits do enough of them exist in the us well you know I mean? yeah so essentially yeah. no is the is, is the short answer yeah. there's um so uh, there's 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 one big uh, wind turbine installation vessel being built which is called charybdis uh, unfortunately named, I would have thought, after the whirlpool of, uh, of, of Greek myth, but uh, that's uh, somebody else's discussion. Um, but essentially, you know, it's it's over budget, it's delayed. You know, they don't have the the the, the means to kind of you know bring about the installations in the to the in the speed that they would like. So I think, you know, there's there's kind of as I suppose we've seen around the world, right? Politicians, you know, set targets. They, they, and in the US, obviously, there's there's a slight difference in that the, the politicians have actually said, look, here's a massive pot of cash, right? We're, 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 we're really stepping up to help you do this. But the physics, like the, sh- the sheer physics of, of, of the problem, right? Of how you get that kit in the ground in the right place, connected to the right things at the right time, it just feels like that is out of step with uh those kind of political uh aims and you know so it's 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 uh, this this kind of mounting problem and i think i imagine we're going to see see more of this and i think you know obviously those companies that have you know promised big bucks uh into 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 these areas i think increasingly there's going to be pressure on them to try and renegotiate deals which again kind of comes back into that political question right how many of these states are going to be willing to say do you know what you have had big handouts. Have some more. So it's it's a it's a really tough challenge to to to, to answer. Yeah, yeah, fascinating to see how that plays out in the US. Uh, and I think clearly people here in Scotland will be watching as well, of course. Uh, okay, well, look, thanks, Ed. Uh, and next up, it's well, it's oily fans and the energy transition. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, did either of you see a story, I think it was in July, about this 
OnlyFans billboards in London, which uh, an NGO called Global Witness, they converted into these deep fake billboards of uh, Bernard Looney of BP. Either of you guys see that back then? Yeah, Twitter uh, had a field day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do think I remember something about it, yeah. Yeah, so off the back of that, um, quite a successful, I suppose, uh, stunt from that NGO an ad agency called Don't Panic in London, they've worked with Greenpeace, they've worked with Banksy, um, they pitched Global Witness a wider kind of social media sting, complete with deep fakes of oil bosses, stunt film, and various other bits and pieces. It was pitched as this kind of buildable shopping list worth a total of more than £60,000. And that, that shopping list found its way to us, uh, and hence the story we had up this week. So um, Don't Panic off the back of this um, billboard um, stunt, said this was the ideal jumping off point for an attention-grabbing tactical intervention. And their proposal, and that, that is what this is at this stage, it's just a proposal, it's not a guarantee that Global Witness pick it up. But the proposal would be this ironic brandalism, as they put it, uh, a kind of social media page championing uh, climate-wrecking practices, retweeting you know the critics of renewables, a sort of just start oil, if you like, that demonizes um, wind turbines, Greta Thunberg, electric vehicles, you, you get the idea. Basically, praising Shell and BP and oil exploration, that kind of thing. Now, <clears throat> up here in Aberdeen, there is a large community of people committed to the energy transition. And that's the same for other, you know, uh, energy areas, oil and gas areas around the UK. And they work, you know, traditionally in the oil and gas industry, but you know, they're working towards practical solutions to convert our energy system for renewables. They know they must. They know, for one thing, the community up here is going to rely on that becoming a success. So I think there's some degree of frustration with campaigns which perhaps don't recognize an energy transition, don't recognize the, the barriers to renewables. We've talked about a couple of them today so far, like grid connection being a very, very prominent one. And uh, I suppose the other point to make here, um, big oil if you look at Scotland, which we've talked about, and electric vehicles in the UK, uh, you know, look at retailers. Uh, you know, it's, play, it's, it's companies like Big Oil and Shell and BP that are making these investments. So, this campaign, uh, to be clear, targeted at executives, um, and you know, so maybe not so much the workers. But it's perhaps hard not to feel this falls on the wrong side of the fence. Perhaps, uh, perhaps an attempt to profit from what might be quite unhelpful and emotive. Um, Discord. So uh, the trade body Offshore Energies UK saying this would feel like a cheap dig at the workers in the sector. The Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce highlighted a recent surveyation poll um, showing majority of Scots back new uh, North Sea oil licenses. Uh, and Global Witness, to be fair to them again, they haven't made a decision here. Uh, they said they consider all proposals uh, as they hold oil executives to account and push for a just transition which benefits everyone, including oil and gas workers. So, you know, not not ignorant of the issues there. Um, perhaps important to highlight this proposal was sent to them on request. Um, so they asked, don't panic, to send, to send it to them uh, is the information we have. So, yeah, that's where we are. Um, shopping list, £60,000. Uh, good value for money, guys. <laughs> it's definitely a sizable shopping list. I think it's, I think it's an, it opens almost an interesting debate, right? And I've... The, I feel like I'm waiting to burn my contact book here, and I feel oh, like I've maybe been this is I'm slightly hesitant <laughs> above uh, ahead of offshore Europe, but um, you know I feel like you know 
the idea of holding holding folks to account, you know, we are in a climate emergency. We have seen Europe burning over the summer. We have, you know, we, we're feeling the effects of climate change and oil and gas is definitely playing a major part in that. And I, I totally get the, the thought process of oil and gas just had a boom last year with, you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine driving up commodity prices. It, it's not insane to think, will oil firms slip on their transition goals and capitalize on this increased cash and maybe not direct it into the energy transition and more into dividends and going back to shareholders, which is I think it's a skeptical view, but a, a definite, definitely a very logical and sensible one. And we often criticize protests, right? We often, you know, whenever you see the latest video from Just Stop Oil or Greenpeace, uh, you know, fossil-free London, you know, holding these protests in the middle of city centers and they're disrupting the individual, the work, uh, you know, just the, the working folks that maybe are trying to get to their job or trying to take their kids to school or whatever it may be. We criticize that and we say that's the wrong way to do things. I don't know if this is entirely the wrong way to do things, if I'm, if I'm honest. You know, it's, it's targeting the people that they want to hold account, uh, accountable. It's starting the conversation. It's putting that pressure on, but it's not ultimately disrupting the people that aren't involved. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, like I say, maybe I just set my, uh, my contact book ablaze and I'll have to hand in my notes <laughs> next week. But that's the way I no, see I it. I, I, I looked at it and I was like, that's, that seems... To me, it seems like, well, what, you know, if we keep criticizing them for doing the big publicity stunts and they're saying they're just wanting to hold the oil execs to account, this is directly targeting oil execs, right? It's not harming anyone well, else. Uh, well, I think, I think it's a, a good point, Ryan. Um, you know, last night at our events, we had people saying, at the simultaneously speaking about the same thing, you know, a climate crisis, which of course is going on. And at the same time, um, uh, talk about an opportunity for building up in you know places like offshore wind, hydrogen, CCS. Both can be true. Um, yeah, targeting oil execs. I suppose the the question here is to what extent would it expand to this the companies more widely? I'm sure it would, um, and therefore expanding to the workers. Um, I, I think perhaps would be where the the criticism comes in of this particularly. But yeah, I mean, look, there's always a there is always a place for for activism and always a place for um, holding people to account. Um, so, yeah, maybe this is a better way of doing that uh, than, you know, holding up uh, people trying to get to work on the roads and, and that. That's probably a pretty good, uh, a good point to make. Um, but yeah, I think, I think what it comes down to for me is just that constructive debate. I mean, is it recognized that people up here, companies up here, are the ones investing? I mean, they talk about a sting on Shell, for example, and BP for oil and gas exploration. A, is it recognized the requirements we have for that in this country? B, is it recognized that these are some of the companies that are investing in clean energies or decarbonization as well? You know, it, 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 and it's not recognized by the political sphere, I don't think, not, not to the extent it should be. And I think this would sow further, further discord in that point. I think, I think that's a fair point, Alistair. And I think, I think Ryan's point about the fact that putting up a poster is, is much less disruptive to people trying to get to work than uh, blockading a road. Uh, so I think, I mean, uh, that I think is, is, is kind of uh, more, uh, more, more a, a, a better choice, I would say. But I think, I mean, I, I just think in terms of sort of um, how, you know, 
you talk about Shell, you talk about BP. Obviously, they came out with big commitments that they've rode back, right? Like they 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 have seen. Oh, actually, the returns for oil and gas are obviously better than you know wind projects for 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 reasons that we've already discussed, right? So I think there is there is a kind of a question there, but I think there's also a question around. Uh, I mean, so my wife is an academic, so and I was talking to some of her students uh, a couple of months ago, and 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 they were saying essentially that they reject the place of like big business to deliver, you know, the energy transition, right? Like they don't think that companies like Shell or BP have a place to, you know, provide renewable energy because they object to those companies. I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't quite see who's going to finance the uh, the energy transition if the people with all the money aren't going to be doing it. But that is just like a sort of a position. So I think I think there's a kind of a question there around. There's kind of a, a bigger question around kind of capitalism, right? Like, do you? I, I think you- my question. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about the capitalism thing. It's this question of like, you know, it, the pro- it comes out to pass. This problem is, you know, we always hear about these events. We need outsiders to engage with the industry so they can hear the side of it. And people are unwilling to engage with the industry unless it's by a form of protest rather than actual discussion. And that thing about, you know, oh, we, we reject, you know, oil majors. I know that's not what you're saying. I don't know. You're just coming to a point there. Um, it, just, it just seems to me totally unrealistic, you know, and I can see why people would get frustrated with that. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't have the answer. But, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think it's an interesting point. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, looking back to I think it was the BP AGM that I sat and listened through. And there was ma- major protest there. And I do remember getting frustrated watching it. You know, I've, I've just supported protests, but I'm away to, I'm away to sort of criticize them here. Um, I think it was Fossil Free London that uh, disrupted that. And any time uh, the chairman stood up to speak, they shouted out, you know, and started disrupting and singing and chanting. And then they were one by one escorted out of the building. And throughout, as as the uh, execs were trying to give their speeches and you know sort of speak about the state of the company, each and every one of them that I heard said, "Well, if you want to wait around, there are questions later, and we could, you know, we will address the the issues if you if you want to ask a question." And then the disruption continued, and they were they were shown the door, you know, uh, which I think is is totally reasonable. You know, they they did have a you know a schedule to keep to, and they still had things to discuss. So. I think yeah, the protest has a point. Uh, a protest has a point in terms of engaging people and raising awareness of an issue. But then there does need to be that adult conversation afterwards, right? I think I think that latter point is totally is not existent in the current sphere. I don't think that actual adult conversation is happening at all. But then I I, th- I think uh, maybe oh, geez, now I'm really going to get controversial. Uh, I feel like in terms of everything right now, it's the same. Like you look at conversation on social media about anything. You look at look at political parties; they're growing further in opposite directions, and it seems very much like oh, I'm. It's either you agree with me and I'm right, or mm-hmm. you are wrong. Yeah. And I feel like that's a growing, you know, philosophy just across the board. And there's not that one for okay, let's sit down and I'll listen to your points and I'll address my points and then maybe we'll come up with something together or maybe we'll walk away and still think that I'm right and you're wrong and that's fine too, yeah. you know? I think, I think I mean, I think I just, just as a sort of a final point for me, I think that's, that's, that is a, that's a fair point, Ryan, but I think uh, when you speak to these kind of climate campaigners, they see climate change as an existential threat, right? They see it as like there is no room for debate and I think it's that, it's that thing, isn't it, where they don't, 
accept the starting premise of your argument. Yeah, 100%. I think if both people come in with sort of strong views to start with, it's difficult to have a, a reasonable adult discussion with both both sides having compromise and meeting in the middle somewhere. Yeah, and I think I think that still eludes us. Um, I, I'm not convinced this campaign necessarily would have brought that middle ground. Um, it seems to me perhaps it would sow it even worse and kind of be kind of very much reflective of the, the atmosphere of, of Twitter that you, or X, I should say, uh, that you're describing there, Ryan. So, uh, yeah. Well, look, I mean, interesting debate, guys. Thanks very much for that. But I think we'll, we'll close it off there. We might pick this up later. We'll maybe need to have some sort of um, debate-style uh, show on this one, I think. That might be a good idea. Um, anyway, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Ed and to Ryan for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening.